I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare, Series 2, Podcast U, Troilus and Cressida. Troilus and Cressida is unique among Shakespeare's plays for not being a comedy, a history, or a tragedy. Like the comedies, it has many comical elements. Like the histories, it tells a historical tale. And, like the Decazibus tragedies, it involves the fall of princes. But it lacks the happy ending of the comedies, the relative authenticity of the histories, and the profound personal engagement of the tragedies. If we are to categorize the play at all, given its plot, language, and tone, it must be as a satire, as mentioned in Session 2 of Chapter 10 in Series 1. Even at that, the play is not a typical satire of the period, or indeed of any period, based as it is on an imaginative recreation of the famous heroes of the ancient Trojan War. Because of its uniqueness as Shakespeare's only satire, the play has suffered from critical attempts to force it into one of the more familiar categories of plays. Some have tried to see it as a tragedy by imagining Troilus as a tragic hero. Some have read it as a failed comedy to be included among the so-called problem plays. Some have seen it as the diatribe of a disillusioned Shakespeare-turned-cynic like Timon of Athens. These attempts falsify the play's real subject and its actual effects. A careful study of the language of the play in the context of the background discussed in the five sessions of Chapter 7 in Series 1 will reveal the reality. Troilus and Cressida is a dramatic evocation of a morally benighted civilization in the process of collapse, as seen from the perspective of an audience for whom redemption, by contrast, is available. The matter of Troy, the great topic of the ancients from Homer on, was very familiar to Shakespeare and his audience. The tradition of often retold tales combined veneration for the heroes of the Trojan War and horror at the destruction of the famous ancient city of Asia Minor. In other places, Shakespeare himself alludes to the greatness of the ancient Greek and Trojan heroes. The tradition was not pristine. In various versions, it included flaws in the heroes. But in general, the heroic reputation of the warriors on both sides at Troy prevailed. In this play, however, Shakespeare detaches himself and us from such veneration in order to serve his satirical purposes. In fact, it is precisely the universal fame of those heroic tales and the more or less permanent invulnerability of the traditional treatment of the matter of Troy that permits Shakespeare to use the Trojan War to achieve the effects he wanted, namely to expose his audience to a biting analysis of the corruption and inevitable collapse of a whole civilization. To set such a depiction of the collapse of human society in a time and place closer to home would be to distract the audience with topical allusions and to risk government censorship, or worse. To accomplish his task, Shakespeare takes the whole matter of Troy and turns it on its head. Though he keeps to the external facts, 
the famously great ancient heroes are here riddled with major character flaws. Their self-promotion but so much empty swagger, and their love but a pretense for lust. Thersites becomes the true oracle of this play, in whose view the entire matter of Troy is summed up in Act 5, Scene 2, lines 194 to 195, in the phrase, Still wars and lechery, nothing else holds fashion. As usual in Shakespeare, still here means always. The structure of Troilus and Cressida is built of a masterful complexity of Shakespeare's familiar use of foils, parallels, and antitheses. The characters Troilus and Cressida are a perfectly matched couple, opposite but equal in their respective errors. The same is true of the Trojans and Greeks generally. The play as a whole dramatizes two opposite but equally corrupt forms of moral blindness, misplaced idealism and cynicism. Together, these two characteristic forms of moral blindness account for the self-caused fall of the civilization depicted in the play. The play is named for the lovers, whose story came to Shakespeare from Homer via a line of descent, including Benoit de Saint-Maur's Roman de Troyes and Boccaccio's Il Filostrato, culminating in Chaucer's Troilus and Creseida, about 1385, and Robert Henryson's Testament of Cressid, later 15th century. From the Middle Ages into Shakespeare's time, Troilus was the archetype of faithful love betrayed, and Cressida of feminine infidelity, which makes it highly ironic that Toyota named a modern automobile for her. Shakespeare keeps to the tradition with Cressida, but instead of taking Troilus as received, Shakespeare makes him into a lover equally, though differently, at fault. Cressida, appropriately enough, is the daughter of a Trojan priest who has gone over to the Greeks. Her own words show Cressida to be calculating, hypocritical, and unchaste from the start, well before she betrays Troilus with Diomedes. Her banter with Pandarus is risque, and she is guileful in manipulating him into manipulating Troilus. In Act 1, Scene 2, she says that with wit she will defend her wiles, and with secrecy, not virtue, she will defend her honesty. Lines 261 to 262. While her following soliloquy expresses her love for Troilus, lines 282 to 295, it also expresses her cynicism about the love of Troilus for her. Her false character is then embodied in her willingness to go to bed with Troilus without his first marrying her, and in her later betrayal of him with Diomedes. Unlike the besotted Troilus, Ulysses in the Greek camp sees through Cressida's external beauty to her falsity. She is a wanton, a daughter of the game, Act 4, Scene 5, lines 54 to 63, a niece befitting her uncle, the pander. Troilus, who, unlike Cressida, is naive, is nevertheless also guilty of betraying her before she ever betrays him. First of all, we see that he himself is changeable. 
When the play opens, he is in arms. Then he says he will unarm again, Act 1, Scene 1, Line 1, because of his love longing. Then he goes to the field of battle after all. In the meantime, Troilus has abased himself in begging for the aid of the go-between Pandarus to get into Cressida's bed, making Pandarus our doubtful hope, our convoy, and our bark, line 104. He subjects himself to a salesman who praises Cressida to Troilus and Troilus to her in order to tantalize the already converted, and Troilus cannot imagine that the resistance of both Pandarus and Cressida is merely contrived, as in fact it is. When he does get into Cressida's bed, he does so without benefit of marriage. His highest goal is not marital, but merely sexual union, as we will see in his arguments in the debate among the Trojan leaders. At the end of the play, at Act 5, Scene 2, lines 165 to 166, he says about himself, Never did young man fancy with so eternal and so fixed a soul. A perfectly ironic expression of Troilus's foolish devotion to notoriously changeable fancy rather than to love. In short, Troilus betrays Cressida by treating her as a mere object of his desire and his pleasure in her bed as the ultimate good. For this betrayal, he is then repaid by Cressida's betrayal of him in the arms of Diomedes. Troilus is foolishly ardent and ingenuous. Cressida is cynically designing and disingenuous. Troilus fights for Troy. Cressida goes over to the Greeks. Like the lovers who give their name to the play, the warriors of the two armies are depicted as suffering from a similarly complementary corruption of values. Their respective betrayals of the heroic ideal are explicitly conveyed in the two great debates, one among the Greek leaders, Act 1, Scene 3, one among the Trojan leaders, Act 2, Scene 2, and in their conclusions. Like Cressida, the Greeks are cynically debunking of all ideals. Their debate is about the law of political relations, hierarchy versus insubordination. Like Troilus, the Trojans are foolishly ardent about false ideals. Their debate is about the law of personal relations, marriage versus lechery. Ulysses' speech to the Greeks voices the truth of the external order, opposite to the chaos of war. Hector's speech to the Trojans voices the truth of the personal order, opposite to the chaos of lechery. These opposite general faults form the two halves of the supposed age of heroes, two forms of corruption of the one set of universal truths Shakespeare and his audience believe to be built into the nature of things, as outlined in Series 1, Chapter 7. The Greek debate in Act 1, Scene 3 begins with Agamemnon and Nestor, who both speak to the fact that after seven years' siege, yet Troy walls stand, line 12. What the forces call shames, line 19, Agamemnon calls, but the protractive trials of great Jove to test the warrior's constancy, lines 20 to 21. Nestor reiterates the idea by saying, with many examples, 
that in the reproof of chance lies the true proof of men, lines 33 to 34. That is, their failures are merely tests of their mettle. But then Ulysses gives a very long and justly famous speech to analyze the cause of the failures. He locates that cause in the overturning of rule, insubordination to the general, the untuning of the string of degree. Ulysses' speech on degree is a detailed evocation of the principle of hierarchy discussed in the first session of Chapter 7 in Series 1. Only by keeping their places in the hierarchy of the universe are the natural and human worlds, planets, elements, communities, schools, brotherhoods, commerce, prerogative of age, crowns, scepters, laurels, line 107, sustained. The stability of all things depends upon degree, priority, and place, insisture, course, proportion, season, form, office, and custom in all line of order, lines 86 to 88. Take but degree away, he says, line 109, and nothing but discord follows until each thing meets in mere opugnancy. Strength should be lord of imbecility. Force should be right, or rather, right and wrong should lose their names, and so should justice too. Then everything include itself in power, power into will, will into appetite, and appetite, an universal wolf, must make perforce an universal prey, and last, eat up himself. Lines 110 to 124. This is all quite right. Ulysses' analysis is accurate and apt. It applies specifically to Achilles, who has refused to participate in battle and has spent his time mocking Agamemnon and the other leaders. And without Achilles, the Greeks have no hope of defeating Hector, the prop of Troy. But it also applies to Agamemnon himself, whose previous speech turns decorum on its head. Speak, Prince of Ithaca, and be it of less expect that matter needless of importless burden divide thy lips than we are confident when rank Thersites opes his mastic jaws we shall hear music, wit, and oracle. Lines 70 to 74. This crabbed and overwrought rhetoric with inverted word order, double negatives, and chiasmus of images is inappropriate in the speech of the chief leader of the Greeks, and its compliment to Ulysses is made through a base comparison to the reviled Thersites. So Ulysses' denunciation of the insubordination of the Greek forces, and specifically of Achilles, is quite correct. But then what follows it? Ulysses himself, joined by Agamemnon, the general of all the forces, Nestor, the oldest and most experienced of leaders, and other Greek heroes, all abase their own degrees by stooping to play a cynical schoolyard trick on Achilles. They decide to use Achilles' pride to force his return to battle by pretending to promote the equally proud but not so capable Ajax into Achilles' place as a match for Hector. In other words, no sooner has Ulysses identified and articulated the behavior that has caused the Greeks' ongoing failure 
then he and those he is advising rush to engage in precisely that behavior. In this way, Shakespeare illustrates how, throughout a society, the habit of cynicism blinds the will to the dictates of reason. In the debate among the Trojans in Act II, Scene Two, we see that the will of men may be similarly blinded to right reason by false idealism. Nestor has sent Troy an offer. Deliver Helen, and the Greek forces will forego every other claim and depart. Lines 3 to 7. The only wise man in Troy, the counterpart to Ulysses among the Greeks, is Hector, who argues that Helen is not worth what she doth cost the keeping. Lines 51 to 52. Troilus, the voice of youth and passion, asks, What's aught but as tis valued? One of the pithiest expressions of corrupt relativism in our literature. The value of anything, he implies, lies only in what people are willing to pay or do to have it. To this absurdity, Hector wisely replies, But value dwells not in particular will. It holds his estimate at dignity as well wherein tis precious of itself as in the prizer. Tis mad idolatry to make the service greater than the god. Lines 53 to 57. That is, true value lies not only in the opinion of the valuer, but in the reality of the thing valued. But Troilus argues for keeping Helen despite the cost and the injustice of doing so because they have all agreed to value her for her beauty's sake and to keep her for their honor's sake. There is great irony in the argument of Troilus and in its hypothetical example. He says, meaning, let's say, I take today a wife, and my election is led on in the conduct of my will, my will enkindled by mine eyes and ears, two traded pilots twixt the dangerous shores of will and judgment. Line 61 to 65. The example is ironic, because though Troilus will in fact take a lover, he will not make her his wife. He then argues that his will, meaning not only free will, but also willfulness and sexual desire, are enkindled by his eyes and ears. This is not wrong. It is characteristic of young lovers that their desire follows the lead of external senses. But then Troilus calls the eyes and ears traded pilots, that is, experienced intermediaries between will and judgment, which he calls dangerous shores. Judgment, a dangerous shore? Eyes and ears to be trusted as go-betweens? The irony of his argument is that his image is directly opposed to what Shakespeare and his audience believe to be the more accurate picture of man's condition. It is the judgment that ought to mediate between eyes and ears on the one hand, and the choices of the will in all senses on the other. Judgment that ought to govern the will's pursuit of what the eyes and ears value. True danger lies in the will's following the eyes without reference to the judgment. Troilus then blames Hector for counseling a change of mind. O oh, theft most base, that we have stolen what we do fear to keep. Lines 92 to 93. Failing to realize that a dishonorable theft 
cannot be made honorable by persisting in it. When Cassandra then enters to prophesy, Troy burns or else let Helen go, line 112, Troilus rejects her prophecies as brain sickness and, along with the besotted Paris, argues for keeping Helen at all costs. So that Hector is quite right to accuse Troilus of arguing, but superficially, not much unlike young men whom Aristotle thought unfit to hear moral philosophy. Lines 165 to 167. The anachronism of the reference to Aristotle, who lived long after the Trojan War, takes nothing away from the point. In response to the superficial chop logic of Troilus, Hector argues rightly as follows. Nature craves all dues be rendered to their owners. Now, what nearer debt in all humanity than wife is to the husband? If Helen then be wife to Sparta's king, that's Menelaus, as it is known she is, these moral laws of nature and of nations speak aloud to have her back returned. Thus to persist in doing wrong extenuates not the wrong, but makes it much more heavy. Lines 173 to 188. The aptness of Hector's speech sounds much like that of Ulysses' speech in Act 1, Scene 3. However, again, as with Ulysses' speech, what follows completely betrays the uttered wisdom. Hector's opinion is this in way of truth, yet ne'ertheless, my sprightly brethren, I propend to you in resolution to keep Helen still, for tis a cause that hath no mean dependence upon our joint and several dignities. Lines 188 to 193. In other words, he caves in. He jettisons his rational and virtuous loyalty to the laws of nature and of nations in favor of pursuing a superficial idea of honor. Since we have stolen her, our dignity requires that we should keep her. Dignity, not virtue. Hector's moral collapse here prefigures that which will occasion his own death. Later in the play, ignoring Cassandra's prediction and the dreams and entreaties of his wife, his mother, and his father, King Priam, Hector goes into battle, where he chases after a Greek for his shiny armor. Having killed the man, and observing, Thy goodly armor thus hath cost thy life, Act 5, Scene 8, Line 2, an epitaph that unintentionally applies to himself, Hector says, Now is my day's work done, line three, and takes his own armor off. He is immediately surrounded and killed by Achilles' myrmidons. Hector's valuing of armor over life leads to his losing his own life for the sake of a goodly armor. Of course, he loses it to the utterly reprehensible and unheroic choice of Achilles to have his men surround an unarmed man and kill him because Achilles himself has been physically weakened by his idleness. But this is the point. One morally corrupt army is warring against another, the anti-heroic wishful thinkers against the anti-heroic cynics. Both exhibit a benighted disregard of fundamental moral principles. In both the debates, then, True value is articulated, 
then betrayed. As in the supposed love relationship between Cressida and Troilus, so in the war relationship between Greeks and Trojans, moral blindness leads to destruction. People betray others because they have betrayed themselves. The play demonstrates what the world is like when the essence of the advice of Polonius in Hamlet, written at about the same time, is rejected. This, above all, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night the day, thou canst not then be false to any man. That's Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 3, Lines 78 to 80. Immoral in himself, one cannot be true to others. Beyond the major contrasting foils of Cressida and Troilus, Greek and Trojan, Greek debate and Trojan debate, a partial list of the many parallels and antitheses of the play would include the following. The vicious mascot of the Greeks is the cowardly biting dog Thersites, and that of the Trojans the sexual go-between Pandarus. The prophecies of the Greek Calchas are used to gain his own advantage, the true prophecies of Cassandra are met with disbelief. Ulysses the Greek speaks the truth about value, then betrays it. Hector the Trojan speaks the truth about value, then betrays it. Agamemnon, the leader of the Greeks, is reduced to a cheap trick to entice Achilles to fight. King Priam of Troy is reduced to begging his son Hector not to fight. The great Greek hope Achilles, weakened by inaction, runs away from Hector and then has his men surround and kill the unarmed hero. Hector, the prop of Troy, chases after a shiny armor, unarms, and is killed in an unfair fight. Achilles, against the will of his people, declines to go to battle so he may keep an oath he made to the enemy Trojans for love of the Trojan girl Polyxena. Hector, against the will of his people, goes into battle in order to keep an oath made to the enemy Greeks to fight them for his honor. Patroclus begs Achilles to fight, Andromache begs Hector not to fight. Cressida is a calculating Trojan held by the Greeks, Helen is a flighty Greek held at Troy. The whole war turns on the broken marriage of the feckless cuckold Menelaus and the beautiful nitwit Helen. Hector's words about Helen at Act 2, Scene 2, Lines 51 to 52, she is not worth what she doth cost the keeping, are validated by what we see of her in Act 3, Scene 1. In that scene, Pandarus comes to get Paris to make excuses to Priam for Troilus's absence from court. Troilus is absent because he will be spending the night in Cressida's bed. Helen engages with Pandarus in naughty verbal byplay and persuades him to sing a naughty song called Love, Love, Nothing But Love. Lines 113 and 115. Shakespeare has made Helen a perfect focal point of the drama of corruption by overturning her mythic reputation for beauty and showing her to be a shallow, frivolous ditz. Paris's love for her is seen to be an equally frivolous sensuality with no hint of the marriage of true minds of Sonnet 116. As with Cressida and Troilus, there can be no true love in this Greek-Trojan couple, 
because she is an empty vessel and he is a worshipper of her shell. To sum up, the Greeks are cynics, debunking every ideal and believing in nothing. The Trojans are fools, rushing in without the rational capacity to govern passion with reason or weigh competing ideals, too young for moral philosophy. At Act 2, Scene 1, Line 126, Achilles responds to the chivalric challenge from his ideal opposite with "'Tis trash," and kills Hector in cynical cowardice. Hector believes that whatever he does is right because he is the hero, Hector, and dies chasing a shiny armor. Ulysses schemes to pit Achilles and Ajax against one another in a pride that supplants all possibility of heroism. Pandarus schemes to unite Troilus and Cressida in a lust that supplants all possibility of love. Troilus foolishly idealizes sexual love, while Cressida cynically uses it. Hector foolishly idealizes his own heroism, while Achilles cynically squanders his. To paraphrase Yeats in The Second Coming, line 7 to 8, the knowing Greeks lack all conviction, while the foolish Trojans are full of passionate intensity. Because of these corruptions of the true order of values, all fall prey to the universal wolf appetite, the concluding image of Ulysses' great speech on degree, Act 1, Scene 3, Line 121. The play begins with the prologues minimizing the matter of Troy, the ravished Helen, Menelaus' queen, with wanton Paris sleeps, and that's the quarrel. Prologue, Lines 9 to 10. This reductive figure of speech is called meiosis, of which, in a sense, the whole play can be read as an instance. The play ends at Act 5, Scene 10, with the venereal disease-ridden Pandarus, a perfect embodiment of appetite, the universal wolf, eating up itself. Now here are three key lines of the play. Key Line 1 in Act 3, Scene 1, there is a telling passage that is easily overlooked. Amidst the double meanings and the banter that opens the scene, we find in the servant a character otherwise non-existent in this play, namely one who depends upon the Lord. You know me, do you not? asks Pandarus. Faith, sir, superficially, lines 9 to 10, says the servant. His faith, sir, that is, in faith or by my faith, implies, with another anachronism, a faith in God that, held by others in the play if it were available to them, would light a path out of their moral benightedness. And he uses superficially in three senses. He knows Pandarus not very well. He knows him by his outward show, which is different from his inward reality, and he knows him to be superficial. When Pandarus says, Know me better, the servant says, I hope I shall know your honor better. Line 13. In calling him your honor, he is giving him an epithet he does not deserve, but the greater sense is not merely know you better, but have reason to know that you have gained some honor that so far I don't see in your character. Finally, Pandarus after implying that his niece Cressida is more attractive than Helen, 
says, my business seethes, meaning is about to boil over, implying that he is in a hurry. To this, the servant responds with sodden business. There's a stewed phrase indeed, lines 41 to 42. Sodden, the past participle of to seethe, also implies what is meant by stewed, from the metaphor stews, meaning brothels. Compare the puns on stewed prunes in Measure for Measure, Act 2, Scene 1, Lines 90 and following. In other words, the servant recognizes that Pandarus is about the business of a sexual go-between, taking his own advantage from the lust of others. Key Line 2 The fecklessness of Menelaus, in keeping with the play's overall satirical intent, is illustrated in Act 4, Scene 5, Lines 28-46, to 46, when Cressida comes to the Greek camp and allows every one of the heroes to kiss her. When it is the turn of Menelaus, Patroclus jumps in and kisses her twice, once for himself and once for Menelaus, mocking the way Paris jumped into Menelaus' place in Helen's bed, lines 28 to 29. This mock is in keeping with Thersites' mocking of the Greek leaders that Achilles and Patroclus have so enjoyed, in Act 2, Scene 3 and others. When Cressida says here to Menelaus, you are odd, and Paris is even with you, line 44, Menelaus answers, you fillip me of the head, meaning literally, flick your fingernail against my head, and figuratively allude to my cuckold's horns. Horns on his own forehead are the symbol of the cuckold, visible to everyone but himself. Ulysses says, it were no match your nail against his horn, line 46. That is, the fingernail of a Cressida is minute compared to the size of Menelaus' horn, the implication being that Cressida's entertainment of the hero's kisses, that is, her loose character, is insignificant compared to the cuckolding of Menelaus. A few lines earlier, Ulysses has given voice to why. O oh, deadly gall and theme of all our scorns, for which we lose our heads to gild his horns. Lines 30 to 31. The argument, that is, the point of dispute of the entire war, is, as Thersites has said, a whore and a cuckold, a good quarrel to draw emulous factions, meaning competitive rival armies, and bleed to death upon. Act 2, Scene 3, Lines 72 to 74. Good here being bitterly ironic, in keeping with Thersites' savage wit. Key Line 3. The two parallel oaths mentioned earlier reinforce Shakespeare's theme and structure. Achilles is engaged by oath to the enemy queen for love of her daughter, Troilus's sister, Polyxena. Achilles says at Act 5, Scene 1, lines 37 to 46, My sweet Patroclus, I am thwarted quite from my great purpose in tomorrow's battle. Here is a letter from Queen Hecuba, a token from her daughter, my fair love, both taxing me and gauging me to keep an oath that I have sworn. I will not break it. Fall Greeks, fail fame, honor or go or stay. 
My major vow lies here. This I'll obey. Come, come, Thersites, help to trim my tent. This night in banqueting must all be spent. He has taken an oath not to fight against the Trojans, fighting whom ought to be his only mission. His opposite, Hector, is engaged by oath to fight the Greek enemy. He says at Act 5, Scene 3, Lines 67 to 75, Aeneas is a field, and I do stand engaged to many Greeks, even in the faith of valor, to appear this morning to them. I must not break my faith. You know me dutiful, therefore, dear sir, let me not shame respect, but give me leave to take that course by your consent and voice, which you do here forbid me, royal Priam. In reality, given the prophecy of his sister Cassandra, and the pleading of his wife Andromache, and his father King Priam, his duty lies in not going out to battle that day. Both speeches use the word gauge, as gauging and engaged, about their oaths. Neither hero chooses to break his oath, the one not to fight, the other to fight. Both choices, putting oaths to the enemy before loyalty to friends, result in disaster. Because Achilles does not fight, his friend Patroclus dies. Because Hector does fight, he himself dies and Troy falls. The defeat and fall of Troy are seen then not as a great triumph of one heroic army over another, or one hero over another, but as the result of moral collapse on both sides. Now here is one specific note to help you in your reading. In myth, Cassandra was a priestess of Apollo, to whom the god gave the gift of prophecy. When she refused his love, he cursed her with never being believed. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare. Shakespeare.